Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Hey, real quick, I uh, wanted to make a, a quick announcement. Well, not a quick announcement. I want to take my time and make this announcement. You want that? Um, we always love in, inviting uh, new people into this church family. So this morning, uh, we have been, uh, th- they've been attending here for I don't know, a couple months, maybe three months. And I, I kind of, I don't, can I tell the story of how you got here? Is that okay? Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'll blame it on your wife. Uh, so we have a family here that uh, they came for the very first time because they were driving to a church and didn't quite make it, turned into our church parking lot. And I think there was just probably people going in. So they're like, ah, I guess we better go in. It's just kind of like gravitational pull. Guess we better go. And they stayed and kept coming and now are placing membership here. Uh, so I want to introduce everybody to Nathan and Marie Vanderlaan. Nathan, if you want to make a little wave. Yes. Yes, I love it. And, uh, and their daughters, Maggie and Eby, are down in the, uh, in the kids' wing. Uh, but we're really, really excited to have you guys here. And we're really excited that you're bad at directions and you ended up in our church parking lot. Uh, we think God can use just about anything. So welcome, welcome, welcome to the family. Um, all right. Many of you have heard of these obstacle runs, like a 5K. I think there are, some of them are called Spartan 5K. You've heard of things like the Tough Mudder. You've heard of things like that. And the idea is, the basic, the basic gist of the whole thing is that it's like going for a run, uh, but you pay someone to make it harder for you. That's the, the, the basic premise. Um, and I know it sounds ridiculous, and it is. Uh, I have done one of these, and it was a lot of fun. But the real excitement is that you you pay a lot of money, and they make it hard, and you get all sweaty and dirty, and then at the end, you get a t-shirt, and in this case, you get a headband, and that's worth all that time and effort and pain and money. Uh, several years ago, I did one, and it was, again, ridiculously expensive, and you get with a big group of people, and there's just uh, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people participating, and so it's a lot of folks who are doing this, and so to kind of make it logistically practical, they group people in groups of about 200, and they have staggered start times. But by the time that you're running, they don't really need to mark the trail because there's been thousands of people who have gone before you, and you know exactly where you're supposed to go. And so you're just kind of trudging along, and you get to this first obstacle. And in this case, the first obstacle was an ice bath. It was August when we did this, and they had this big tub filled with ice, and you had to jump in, and you know, whatever. You're just, you're extreme, and you're tough, and all that, right? But I noticed after the first couple of obstacles that you could come to it, and then I noticed that there was a trail, a path that was worn down around the obstacle. So what had happened is people had gotten to a big tall wall like this, and they looked at that and they said, nah, and they just ran around it. And evidently enough people had done this that it had created a trail around it. It had mashed down the grass and dirt and it worn a path around it. Now, here's the thing. This is the important part. People could avoid the obstacle, and they could still get a t-shirt and a headband at the end. What I'm saying is, in theory, you could have skipped every single obstacle and still get a t-shirt and a headband. 
Which means that there are people walking around among us that are wearing t-shirts and headbands, but they didn't do any of the hard things. And so next time you see one of them, what you need to do is interrogate them. Because that's always a good way to get to know somebody. Did you really do it? Did you really earn it? Now, we're in the beginning of a brand new series. We've just finished up a series on the basic teachings of Jesus, the, the, the fundamental focus of what he taught as he walked around um, uh, first century Israel, just, just interacting with people. These are the things that he liked to talk about. He came back to over and over and over. And now we're in a new series, and we're going to incorporate the previous one just a little bit. But the premise of this entire series is that Jesus always, always, always had a next for everyone. Jesus always had a next for everyone. That could be some change he was encouraging them to make. That could be a belief he was encouraging them to have. That could be a practice or a habit that he was encouraging them to engage in. That could simply be uh, praying and pausing and waiting that he was often encouraging even his followers to do. Just wait, just wait, just wait. But there was always something that he was looking for for people. There was always a next. Think about every interaction with Jesus, every interaction uh, with Jesus. This will be a little interactive game. Uh, some of you can show off your Jesus knowledge. Think about every interaction he had. Sea of Galilee, Jesus walking along the shore. He sees two fishermen, one named Simon and one named Andrew. What was his next for them? Not a trick question. Follow me. Follow me. Drop, some of you are like, you get real specific. Drop your nets and follow me. Yeah, but follow me, right? The next thing, he was like, don't do what you're doing anymore. Now do this other thing, right? This is pretty, this is pretty simple. It's going to get a little harder as we go here. You're really going to be able to show off. Uh, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples during a storm. He's sleeping. They wake him up and say, hey, we're about to die. Uh, and Jesus calms the storm and he says something to them. In that case, well, what did he say to them? Boy, a lot of murmuring here, but that's, I think I heard, oh, ye of little faith, a lot of King James readers here. Okay, oh, you of little faith. What's he saying with that? He's saying your faith needs to be deepened or strengthened. That's what's next for them. You need to deepen your faith in me because I, it's not my time to die yet. We're not going down in this boat. You need to deepen your faith. Here's a third and final one. This is probably going to be pretty easy for you too. Uh, a wealthy, young um, powerful leader in Israel comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to gain an eternal life? And he says, I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. I've, I, I've, I followed the law and the prophets. And then Jesus says, oh, well, there actually is one more thing that you could do. What was Jesus next for this young man? What was the next for him? Yes, all in unison. Very good. Sell everything you have and follow me. That's exactly right. There was always a next. Anytime you read of an interaction with Jesus, there was always something he told them to do. It could be really simple and small and basic. It could be huge and big and, and monumentous, but there was always a next. So the truth is, there is still a next for us. That's the premise. There's a next for us. And this is a really personal question for you to think about. And maybe this is what all you're going to be able to think about the rest of the morning. But for you, there is a next that Jesus is asking for you. There's something that he wants for you, a step he wants you to take, a change he wants you to make in your life. Now, now you may be thinking, well, I, I don't know exactly how to identify that. Great, we're going to help you. 
But I want you to just see two quick scriptures that one of Jesus' later followers, the Apostle Paul, wrote about this idea. They're very, this first one, in fact, is, is particularly, I think, particularly poignant and beautiful, the way Paul describes the fact that for all believers, for all followers, there's a next. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he says, and we all who with unveiled faces, this is a reference to Moses interacting with Jesus, excuse me, Moses interacting with God uh, on Mount Sinai. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, like the, like the breaking of the dawn. It's getting brighter and brighter. This glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. We are being transformed. That's a truth for the first century followers. It's a truth for you. We are being transformed. He also wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, or verse 6, I like this as well, the way he worded it. He says, being confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, God pinged something in your heart, caused a desire, something ignited, a flame, a spark of faith ignited. God began that in you. He who began a good work in you will carry it on in, 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 to completion, to fruition, until it's, it's done, until it's what it needs to be. And then he says, until the day of Christ Jesus, meaning that because Christ hasn't come back yet, we're still in that until period, meaning for you, there is a next. For you, there is a next. Sometimes, next is active. You need to get off your rear and go do something. Sometimes next is active. You need to share, forgive, to stop something, to start something, to, to get baptized. Sometimes next is active. Sometimes, often, next is passive, and this really bugs us, but sometimes next is passive. Sometimes next is to be still and wait, to pray, to be patient, to hang in there. Sometimes that's what the next is for you. Occasionally, and I would all offer rarely, our next is uncertain. We're not sure. We're not sure what God is calling us to do, what Jesus is encouraging us to do next. Sometimes it's uncertain. Almost always, it's obvious. And, and I don't mean that God, and this could be true, I don't mean that God is calling you to start a new business or, or, or maybe to marry a certain person. I mean that God is transforming you and developing you, and most of us know the areas in which we need to be transformed and developed. It's not a big surprise, our sins and our struggles. It's, it's obvious. We, we, kind of, we kind of know, and always, almost always, I guess I should say, the next is hard. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy step to take, which is why some of you have been waiting to take that step for months, years, decades. You know what is next, and you haven't done it. Pretty direct, Patrick. I know, I know. But I think that's important for us to acknowledge and to say. And this means that for a lot of us, we know what we should be doing next, but we're not doing it. We know, but we're not. Now, I know some of you are like, Patrick, I did not come to church today to be convicted. I just kind of want a nice word, but I'm, I apologize. I've been praying about what God would want us to do next as a church. And guess what? This is where we are. We have to wrestle with what is it that God is convicting us, that the Spirit of God is convicting us to move us toward, to go deeper, to go greater, to be more. What is that? We know what we should be doing next, but we're not doing it. That is the spiritual equivalent of signing up for an obstacle course, looking at the big wall and saying, no, thank you. Nope, I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to go all the way around, in fact. 
We, uh, the staff was at a conference this week, earlier this week, Monday and Tuesday, and the conference speaker talked about the ministry that he had started, the specific ministry that he was in, uh, and he said that he had to leave a good job to begin this ministry. This has been nearly two decades ago, but he said between the time where he felt absolutely convicted, the clarity of what he should do, between the time he felt that and the time he did something was two years because he didn't want to give up this good, secure, well-paying job. That was a hard step. He knew what was next, but he didn't do it for two years. And I think for some of us, two years would be pretty optimistic because it's been a long time since we know the things that we should, we should be repenting of and things we should, we should be transforming. And we need to make it happen. So the real question isn't so much what is next for us. The real question for most of us is what's keeping us from what is next. What's the thing in the way? What's the obstacle that we're willing to go around? Or what's the rationale that we've given ourselves for going around that obstacle? So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark chapter 8, we're going to be in a few different texts in this series. But today we're going to start in Mark chapter 8 that Jeff read for us. Uh, it's right in the middle of a thought. So you're jumping right in the middle of a thought. And I think that that's okay because I think you're a smart crowd. You can catch up pretty quickly. Mark chapter 8 verse 29. Jesus talking to his 12, his disciples. What about you guys? He's asked them, who do other people think I am? And he's like, I want to know who you think I am. Now, this is important because people were clearly trying to figure Jesus out. He showed up on the scene and they were like, I don't quite know who this guy is. He's a carpenter. He's a rabbi. He's saying some pretty controversial things. I like some of them. Other things I don't. I need to, who is this guy? And so Jesus asks, who do people say I am? And then he says, but who do you think I am? He clearly is not just a carpenter from Nazareth. So Peter, as it always is, it feels like, Peter's the one who kind of, I mean, looks around the room, I think, for a minute, but then he clears his throat. He's like, well, <clears throat> um, I, I've got an answer. Teacher's pet kind of guy. And he says, you are the Messiah. Huge concept. Huge. I wish we could just dig into that. But there is a whole universe of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, prophecy, language, idea, talking about this person, this figure, this, this entity that would be coming. And, and Peter's like, I mean, I'm assuming they're sitting around a, a, a fireplace and they're just like, and Peter's like, well, I think you're the Messiah. Yeah, the Messiah that is spoken of all the way back in the book of Genesis, the Messiah that's spoken of in the book of Isaiah. I think, I think you're that guy. I think you're that. This is a big, big moment. Now, Messiah is kind of an important word. It means anointed one, and it's just Hebrew language for the act of identifying a king. So they anoint the person with oil, and that became language to say, well, you're the king, you're the, or, or in this case, you're the future king. You're the promised king, you're the prophesied king, you're the one. So this is a, this is a moment. I would imagine the other uh, disciples sitting around the fire, I mean, I imagine they were probably thinking it, just Peter that says it. I imagine like they, they got goosebumps, like, ooh, this is a moment. This is it. I mean, this is our whole nation has been living for this moment, and here it is. It's a moment. Years ago, uh, we were here in this room. And my now 11-year-old was probably three or four, and he wanted me to hold him on his back while we were singing songs, or on his back. That'd be really funny, wouldn't he? Carry me, Liam. <laughs> he wanted me to hold him on his back. And so we're sitting there in one of these rows, you know, the old chairs, the comfy chairs, right? 
And uh, we're singing a song, and whoever was leading worship that day, I don't recall who it was, they had selected the song, It Is Well, right? Powerful song. Like, no matter what's happening in my life, blare it out. It is well. It is well. I should have suggested we sing It Is Well. Sorry, praise team. That would have been a really good one to, to fit in there. But anyway, uh, so I've got him on my back. Everybody's singing. Everybody knows that song. Like, especially if you're Church of Christ, you're like, ah, we can nail this one. So we're singing It Is Well. And I got him on my back. His little face is right here. And his little tiny squeaky voice right in my ear. Little tiny squeaky voice. It is well. And I'm like, I'm telling you, goosebumps. I'm like, this is a little moment with my guy. Just my, like, what? Now, does Liam understand the deep theology of what he is singing? No. But it's a moment. It's a step in the journey, right? Does Peter understand the deep theology of what he is claiming? <laughs> no. We'll see that in just a second. But it is a step in the journey. It is a good moment. And Peter, because this is what you do when you're trying to answer the teacher's questions, you're trying to get a pat on the head. And Peter feels pretty good because he's answered correctly with something big and profound. Very, very important. Mark chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Very confusing. Wait, this is what it's all about, Jesus. Why would we keep this secret? Well, because there's a whole you know, story to unfold. And if you just jump the gun, it's going to get crazy. It's just going to get nuts. So let's just, let's just keep this fact to ourselves. And we're going to figure out how we unroll this communication to everybody else in the world. Okay? Just give it some time. Don't tell anyone. Then he says, this is kind of interesting, excuse me. Then he says, Mark 8, chapter verse 30, or Mark 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, this is another term he liked, kind of like Messiah, uh, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now just understand, we're doing a little study here, and that's good. Consider the juxtaposition of what has just happened, right? They're all around the campfire. They're all having this moment. Peter's just made this declaration. This is incredibly powerful. This is a goosebump moment. Realization is dawning. Light bulbs are going off right and left. It's a huge moment. And Jesus is like, yeah, yes, you guys, you guys got it. I am the Messiah. Everything that the Old Testament, everything that the Hebrew Bible was building up to is, it culminates in me. Don't tell anyone. But listen, guys, here's what's going to happen next. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to suffer a lot. It's going to be bad. It's going to be brutal. And then I'm going to die. Now, Peter stopped listening after the I'm going to die part, I think, because he didn't really get what was next. He didn't understand. And of course, he didn't understand. This was, this was mind-boggling stuff. They didn't, they didn't get it. But he didn't understand what Jesus was saying. So, verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Because <laughs> Peter just got it right. And now Jesus is getting it wrong. And Peter's like, well, oh, okay, guys, hang on. Let me talk to Jesus for a second. Peter took him aside. Jesus, what are you doing? Like, this is not, do not, you're the leader now. You're the king now. You cannot talk like that in front of these guys. These are your troops. You need to, you need to rally the troops. You need to give them a pep talk. You need to talk about how we're a band of brothers. Don't start talking about dying. He rebukes him. Do you see that? It's strong language. Rebuke is, is, is very, it's a sharp word. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when you were learning to drive or uh, maybe you were being taught to drive and you were being taught by a driving instructor. 
If, if you make a turn without using your signal, your parent or teacher or instructor may say, uh, you know, in the future, you may consider that when you make that turn, you should signal so that people, you know, they'd be very calm about it. But when you were being taught to drive and you made a wrong turn onto a one-way road into oncoming traffic, they rebuked you. What are you doing? Pull over right now. Get to the side of the road. You're going the wrong way. That's rebuke. That's the nature of that word. It's a lot more intense because you're doing something that is absolutely wrong. That's what rebuke is, right? You know, if you're being, t- you need to turn, don't be a stinker, turn on the blinker, right? You know, then you might be. You turn into one-way traffic, no more cutesy rhymes, right? So Peter's thinking, you're talking about death, you're the Messiah, you are going the wrong way, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you completely misunderstand. And so this is interesting because Jesus is, we know Jesus is a loving being. We know Jesus exemplifies the characteristics of God and he's, he's benevolent and compassionate and kind and full of mercy and grace and, and, and love. And what Jesus does is rebukes Peter in front of everybody. Because I, I think we would be like, no, 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 the right way is pull Peter aside, even further away, just like, Peter's wrong, guys. I'm going to go correct him real quietly over here in the corner. And Jesus is like, no, 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 everybody needs to hear this. And so he makes sure the, the disciples are paying attention. Verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. No, Peter, you are going the wrong way. I ha- this has to happen. What I am promising, what I am prophesying, this has to take place. If this doesn't take place, then the whole thing is worth nothing. You do not understand what's happening, Peter. You're saying, hey, Jesus, you're coming up to that high wall. You just need to go around it. Don't try to go over it. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. The only way to life is through death. That's the only way that this is going to happen. And he rebuked Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Satan, the, the, the being, the entity trying to, 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 to work against the good that God is doing in the world. Peter, you're being used by Satan. Get behind me. I don't want that. That's not what this is about. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter's going the wrong way on a one-way street. This is so important. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just embarrass Peter in front of the disciples. Look at what he does in the next verse, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, listen, this is important. If you want to be my disciple, if you're interested in this, you have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, and you have to follow me. Pretty big stuff. The very first U.S. Olympic marathon is a crazy story. Crazy. They're making a movie about it because it's just nuts. I'm going to give you the highlights. Um, This is in 1904, St. Louis, Missouri. There were 32 racers. Many of these guys hadn't even run anything before, you know, just like running down the street. They're just like, we need some guys. We're going to run, in fact, in fact, they didn't even have a full marathon. It wasn't 26.2, it was like 25.4 or something like that, because it hadn't been standardized yet. And we're like, we need some guys to run this. You guys want to do it? And they were like, okay. So they got 32 guys, had, some hadn't doing it, done any real running. And this was back when the Olympics were literally amateur athletes, right? They weren't like, didn't have a bunch of sponsorships, literally amateur. Uh, and so, for example, this is true. And I went through here examining this photo carefully and then matching it up with the documentation. So you, you're welcome. I spent way too much time on this. But this is true. There were, let's see, number one, there was a professional clown. That's that guy right there. Professional clown. 
hey, you want to run a race? Yeah, why not? I mean, they, these guys had run some before, but I'm telling you, this is a bricklayer over here, and this is a mailman over here. Yeah, bricklayers. I want to see you run a marathon, bricklayer. All right. <laughs> this is true. The mailman did not have running gear, which I don't know what passed for running gear in 1904, but he showed up in his mailman outfit with his boots. And so he got to the beginning, you know, not quite the starting line, but just the beginning of it. And there was a fellow competitor who was like, man, we got to help you out. Found a pair of scissors and cut his pants into shorts. So what you're seeing there, it's hard to tell, but they are just cut into shorts. But he didn't have shoes. He's just wearing boots. Wearing boots for this thing. This is unbelievable. Uh, the bricklayer, now the race started, right? They all got, you know, all got off. And by the way, the, the path, and this is kind of, well, it's mildly relevant. The path was, was led by um, a team on horses, and it was a dry, dusty, dirt path. So these guys are just running right into dust. 1904, summer, 90-some degrees. It's just miserable conditions, running right into dust. So the bricklayer... Right there uh, at mile nine, got a little tuckered out, as you can imagine. And because there wasn't a lot of like police presence on the route, he got into a car and rode from mile nine to mile 20, <laughs> which I would too. I don't blame him. I actually think that's a good idea. I would definitely do that. Um, so he rode a big chunk of the race. The mailman, the guy right over here, he stopped and got hungry and ate some apples, which had evidently were a little off, and it kind of made him sick. He found a field, laid down, and took a nap during an Olympic marathon. He took a nap. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> some of you are like, eh, just skip the marathon, do the nap. That sounds better anyway. The clown, this is, <laughs> this is so ironic. Uh, the clown was told that best practices at the time were that hydration would bog you down. So they only had one water stop on the route, and he was told not to drink. So he got near mile like 20-something, and I actually have a picture of him. This is, the, uh, uh, this is the professional clown. Next slide, if you would. This is him. These are his trainers, you know, in suits. Again, it's like 90 degrees. And then can you just, he just looks miserable. And they're not hydrating him. They're just patting him down with sponges that have water, which I guess is better than nothing. True story. Uh, professional clown won the marathon. He was the first place finisher. His trainers had to carry him across the finish line. They carried him across. It is still, to this day, an Olympic record for the slowest marathon in Olympic history. <laughs> slowest. He came in first, though, so what are you going to do? The guy that rode in the car, you would think, well, why didn't he come in first? Well, he did, and they were all ready to award him the, uh, the prize, but somebody was like, uh, you, he rode in a car most of the way, and he's like, ah, gotcha. And they were like, you can't, that's not okay, and they banned him from the Olympics, so he didn't... <laughs> He was like, joke, ha, psych, that's funny. Um, the bricklayer, or the, excuse me, the mailman who took a little snooze on the route, he finished fourth. <laughs> fourth. So you can have it all. You really can have it all. Now, the cool thing, the, the reason I'm telling you this story at all is that this is what they concluded. This is what the news, this is what the experts, this is what everybody concluded after this race in 1904. They concluded the human body is not capable of this. This is asking too much. And so they literally said, there's a quote from the newspaper, a 25-mile run is asking too much of human endurance, right? And I, I know a lot of us in the room are like, that is true. <laughs> I 1,000% agree. Asking too much of human endurance. 
I want you to consider that quote here for a second because we just wrapped up a series talking about Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' teaching was a lot. Love your enemies, forgive, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. It was a lot to do those things. In fact, I think a lot of us might say what Jesus asked is too much. And that's why for decades we haven't taken that next step. Jesus, what you're asking is too hard. It is too much for human endurance to do those things, to forgive, to love, to show grace, to give sacrificially, whatever it is to obey. It's asking too much. Here's the cool thing. About a month ago, almost exactly a month ago, Kelvin Kiptum broke the men's world record uh, for a marathon. Broke it just over, just over two hours. Just over two hours. Uh, it's no joke to say that most of us wouldn't drive as fast as this guy is running. He's running a mile in about four minutes and, uh, and 36 seconds. I wrote it down. Four minutes and 36 seconds. That's very fast. And he's running that for 26.2 miles. Here's the crazy thing. Do you know what his training uh, regimen is? This guy only started running marathons a year ago, by the way. He's running 25 miles every day. So let me ask you this question. Is a 25-mile race too much for human endurance? Maybe for most of us, but it's possible. It's possible. Is doing what Jesus has asked us to do too much? No. It is possible. It is possible we have just let ourselves off the hook because it is hard. I've used this quote so many times, and I'm going to use it again until it's no longer true for our church. G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Now, I realize that sounds harsh and direct, but listen, I'm, I'm preaching to me as well. There's so many times where I've excused my disobedience because that's too much. That's too hard. That's too far. But it can be done. It can be done. If we are following Jesus, but avoiding the hard things, we are not following Jesus. If you say, hey, I got the t-shirt and the headband, but you have run around all the obstacles, you're not following Jesus. If we say, oh, Jesus, I love you, and I want to be, I, I, I want to, you're the Messiah, you're the kingdom, king who has come, and I want to be part of the kingdom, I'm not actually going to do those things that you've asked me to do, but you're my king. No, he's not. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. Is that hard? Yes, that is very hard. If Jesus is asking us to do something next and we're not doing it, we're not following him. This is a hard truth to recognize in ourselves. This is a hard truth. Uh, and whatever it is, it could be a, a variety of things. It could be confessing our sins. It could be repenting. It could be just, just all kinds of things, right? You, you fill in the blank. But we still want the t-shirt and the headband. The problem here, when I say this, this is hard. This is hard stuff. The problem here is spiritual disconnect. Spiritual disconnect. This is an example. It's, it's really, uh, it's kind of a cheap example. And, I, and let me explain why. Because, um, well, I'll tell you the example and I'll explain like, it. I wrestled with whether or not to use this. But uh, I was watching the Grammys uh, a few years ago. 
and there was an artist who won a Grammy for best song in a specific category. And they, I had not ever heard the song, but I had heard of the song. The song had a reputation. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what they're going to say as a thank you, as they get up. Because the, the song, um, well, the song, I, if I read the lyrics to the song to you here in church, uh, I would not finish my sermon before a couple elders were escorting me out the door, right? It's not, not a wholesome song. If you emailed the lyrics to a coworker, your next trip would be to the HR department and you would be going home with a box of your stuff, right? If you use these lyrics in even the public school system, you would be visiting the principal with your parents and a counselor. These are not great, not wholesome lyrics, right? And I'm th- I, so I looked up the lyrics, kind of wish I hadn't, but I looked up the lyrics and I thought, what is this person gonna say? They got up on stage at the Grammys and they said, um, <laughs> they said, uh, first and foremost, I want to thank God because without God, this wouldn't be possible. Now I know, see, it's a cheap example because I don't know what's going on in their heart and their lives. I have no idea. I just know there's quite a disconnect between the content of what they are thanking God for and the actual thanking of God. It's just, it's disconnect. It feels like a, a disconnect to sing those lyrics and to say, well, without God, it wouldn't be possible. And I guess technically that's true, but it's very strange, right? It doesn't feel like it's honoring to God. And it's interesting as an observer to say, huh, that's interesting. But because... Following Jesus is hard. I wonder if we have created a Christian culture, a faith culture, where people can consider themselves followers of Jesus without following. Well, let me say that. That's not, that shouldn't be a question. We have created, in the U.S., we as Christians have allowed there to be a culture where people follow Jesus, claim to follow Jesus without following Jesus. But here's the thing. I think this happens for us right here in our little corner of the world, too where we feel very good about, oh, I'm a Jesus follower. Well, are you following? Well, eh, debatable. No, 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 that that disconnect. Come on, I'm I'm gonna go around this obstacle, Jesus. So here's the question is, it's easy to pick on the Grammy Award winner, right? That's an easy example. But where in your life are you doing the exact same thing? Where are you trying to glorify God, but your life doesn't match what you're claiming, what your lips are saying? We aren't followers of Christ if we're not following Christ. So in this series, and we're going to just, just about to wrap up, I'm going to tell you a story here in a second, and we're going we're to close with some, a song and some prayer. But in this series, we're going to ask these four questions. Where am I avoiding the hard things when it comes to faith and discipleship, right? Where am I avoiding the hard things? That we're, we got that obstacle, we got that wall, and we've gone around it. Where are we neglecting the small things? Eh, doesn't matter, who cares, no big deal. Where are we focusing on the wrong things? And where are we expecting different things? We're going to explore each of those each week of this series. A lot, this can be pretty subtle, especially when we're talking about the hard things. It can be pretty subtle. Uh, a few years ago, there were two cable news pundits arguing. <laughs> Shocking, right? What else did they do? They were arguing on cable news. But what I thought, thought was interesting about this particular um, interview is that this guy was claiming to be a Christian, and he was saying Christians need to care for the poor. Pretty sensible, right? Well, the host was also claiming to be a Christian, and he was arguing, well, 
yeah, but we can't just enable laziness, right? So you've heard these debates. You've had these debates internally. Like, what do I do here? That person, you know, you've had the debates, right? So they're going back and forth and right. So this one over here, finally, you know, claiming to be a Christian. Well, Jesus would help the poor, right? And that's mic drop. What else are you going to do? You bring Jesus into the debate. I mean, Jesus wins the debate. But then the other one had this response. And this is interesting. This, runs, this is a quote. Watch the, the, the interview this week. So it's an older interview, but it's still online. The other, the host said, being a Christian, I know that Jesus promoted charity at the highest level. But, and that's where you got to watch out, he was not self-destructive. Jesus promoted charity at the highest level, love at the highest level, but he was not self-destructive. Put another way, Jesus, this is what he's saying, Jesus would not help someone at the cost of hurting himself. Hmm, I could be wrong. I mean, that sounds reasonable. You're like, hmm, well, it's pragmatic. Yeah, very practical. I could be wrong, and feel free to correct me. I don't, I don't mind at all. But I do seem to recall something Vaguely, uh, in the story of Jesus, about him hurting himself for the sake of others, allowing himself to be hurt. Do you remember anything like that? Is there anything, anything about Jesus allowing himself to be crucified for the sake of others who were his enemies? Yeah. Would not help others at the cost of self-destruction? That's wild. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love just as... Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You can see, do you see this? This is a great example because that debate, by the way, the host is someone many of you allow into your home on a regular basis. You are being discipled by this person who makes claims that Jesus would promote charity at the highest level, but not at the cost of being self-destructive. That's, we are allowing those voices to shape us and then those voices enter the church. And when the church has discussions about what do we do, how do we help, where do we go forward, we're allowing these voices from cable news to tell us, well, we don't want to go too far. We don't get impractical. I mean, Jesus wouldn't be self-destructive. Like, come on. That's ridiculous. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you see? Do you see why Jesus rebuked Peter in front of the disciples and in front of the crowd? Because Peter was saying, no, 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 that's too far, Jesus. That's not what this is all about. And Jesus is like, you have no idea. You have to understand that to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That is what it's all about. So let's ask this question as we wrap up this morning. I'm going to ask the praise team if they'd come back up on stage. We're going to sing a song about the cross about the wonderful cross that bids me come and die so that I might truly live. But here's the question to wrap us up this morning is what is really keeping us from what's next? What's really in the way? What is really inhibiting us from taking that next step? Would you stand as we sing together?